So please turn with me to Mark 10, 1 through 12. It's where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning. Mark 10, 1 through 12. So Mark 10, 1 through 12 is one of the more controversial passages in scripture because it deals with very personal issues, marriage and divorce. Many of you are familiar with the different approaches taken on this passage, even among those who accept the Bible as God's perfect word. Indeed, the position I will present today puts me at variance on some details with many of the men I most highly respect. But after considerable study and much prayer, I'm convinced in my own heart that I have the mind of the Spirit on this as revealed to us in the Bible as a whole. Those words that I just read are not mine, but they could have been. In fact, these are Cody's words from a sermon he preached on this passage some 20 years ago. So how can both Cody and I say this and arrive at different conclusions? Well, to be sure, the Bible is less certain, uh, less clear on certain issues than others, but the primary problem is this. God's word is perfect, and we are not. So how could we be in different places on this and still be in happy unity? Well, it's because the gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves us, not our conclusions regarding very important but secondary and tertiary issues. Unity, even when there is disagreement for the sake of the gospel and our holiness and peace. Convinced in our own hearts, then, I endeavor to move forward sensitively and charitably in the spirit of John Newton, who acknowledges the perfection and preeminence of the gospel, while also accounting for our human propensity to error and sin. Newton says this, I allow that every branch of gospel truth is precious, that errors are abounding, and that it is our duty to bear an honest testimony to what the Lord has enabled us to find comfort in and to instruct with meekness such as are willing to be instructed. But I cannot see it my duty, nay, I believe it would be my sin to attempt to beat my notions into into other people's heads. So my intention in this sermon is, is to go where Mark goes in this passage. He, he aims to hold high the divine institution of marriage in a context that has taken marriage and made it something that's man-made, made it in our image, a flimsy husk of what God intended it to be. Rather, marriage is God-made. It's a divine union. Then I aim to give a brief but hopefully fair overview of the different biblically faithful viewpoints regarding divorce and remarriage with some special attention given to the view that might be, we might be less familiar with. So first, though, remember where we are in Mark. It's been a while. Jesus, uh, the message of Mark is this. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he surprisingly serves and suffers in order to save his people. Follow him. So we've reached the turning point in Mark that was in 827 through 32, where Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, and and Jesus then goes on to predict his rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection. He proclaims what is what we know as the gospel. So the gospel, the person of Jesus, is what saves. And this this is what controls everything that follows here and after in Mark, this gospel context. It's no wonder, then, that we spent two sermons considering our blood-bought unity and our blood-bought purity in Mark 9, 33 through 50. Remember the disciples seeing someone that was not in their group 
exercising his faith, they tried to stop him, but God said, but Jesus said, no, he is united to you because he is united with me. Unity because of the gospel. And unity goes hand in hand with the purity of the saints. Indeed, Christ has, brought our, has bought our purity, and where his people pursue purity, there is unity. And where there is unity, this inevitably fosters purity. So it's fitting, then, that our passage today is about marriage, an institution that embodies unity and purity in so many ways, but it's also a topic that can divide, specifically regard to divorce and remarriage. But let's take our cue from the context of this passage. What purifies us? What unites us? Is it our interpretation on what constitutes biblical divorce and remarriage? No. In the spirit of some of the questions Cody asked last week, are we saved because we have the right position on divorce and remarriage? No. Somebody's wrong. Somebody's wrong on this position. Somebody's wrong on the position of of baptism. Somebody's wrong on the position of many other secondary issues in evangelicalism. But this is not what's going to save us, is having the right position and conclusion on these things. What unites us and purifies us is what, and what saves us is what Mark, said, Mark writes in 827 through 32. Jesus is the Christ and the Son of Man who suffered many things, was rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and was killed and after three days rose again. This is what saves us. This is what unites us. Nonetheless, I have a responsibility as an under-shepherd of our great high shepherd, and we have a responsibility as Christians to press into these harder topics and to seek to faithfully come to biblically informed conclusions. We do not shirk this responsibility. We press in in order to intentionally foster a culture of humility and peace among believers who may disagree on certain things. Regardless, we join in happy union and fellowship still. Such union and such unity and diversity, and even in disagreement, is what John Newton says is peculiar in the eyes of the world. And it brings down heaven to earth. So that's what we aim to do this morning. Given the nature of this topic and this passage, I will probably be a little more tied to my manuscript than usual because I want to uh, be as clear as I can. So look with me at Mark 10, 1 through 12. First, we see this in two parts, verses 1 through 4. We see the prevailing low view of the day, man-made marriage. That's verses 1 through 4. Then in verses 5 through 12, we will see Jesus' Old Testament retrieval of the original high view of marriage. God made marriage. Those are the the two parts of this passage. And the main idea in this passage is marriage between a man and a woman is God's doing and and man must not seek to undo it. Marriage is God made and man must not seek to undo it. So first look with me at part one, the prevailing low view of the day, man made marriage, verses one through four. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. 
So this entire passage, verses 1 through 12, is basically a situation and then Jesus' response to the situation. Here in verses 1 through 4, we see the situation. Teaching and testing. Jesus is teaching a gathered crowd and the, and the Pharisees come in order to test him, to try to trap him, to try to trip him up. And specifically here, they try to make him pick a side in their presently divided culture on the issue of divorce and remarriage. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And how does Jesus initially respond? Well, as he usually does, with a question to them. What did Moses command you? They then reference Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which we heard read this morning, saying, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So that's the situation on the surface. Let's go a little deeper. What makes this question such that it is such a sticky question that they would use it to test Jesus? Why would they pick this question to test Jesus? There's something to it that makes it particularly testy in a way, right? Well, in the parallel passage of Matthew 19.3, we might gain a little insight because there we see the Pharisees ask Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So notice the difference. Here the question includes the phrase, for any cause. This gives us insight into the nature of the question that makes it such a touchy one. So perhaps a little historical context will shed some light on this passage. The phrase for any cause is, is quite essential to this situation. You see that there, there were really two primary schools of thought in the Jewish culture at this time. Two camps based on Pharisaical teaching, based on teachers in the Pharisees. The minority view was that divorce was only allowed when there had been a case of sexual immorality. In fact, divorce was not only permitted, it was required. And this was the common view across the whole spectrum, pretty much, of the the Roman and Jewish context of the time. Sexual immorality required divorce. So this is the minority view. The prevailing majority position in the Jewish culture of this day was that divorce was not required only for sexual immorality, but for any cause that the husband deemed displeasing and requiring of divorce. Literally, in the context of the day, the husband could divorce his wife for burning a meal, any cause. This was the prevailing opinion. It was the air that the culture breathed. This would have been the position of the Pharisees and likely the position of Jesus' disciples themselves. This was just in the water. So, how did these two schools of thought come uh, come about? Well, it it comes down to what they interpreted Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, to mean by some indecency. We read, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce. Indecency is the key word. It's literally translated the nakedness of a thing. So they, they both, both camps agreed that, that this meant at least sexual immorality, most normatively adultery, for which divorce was required. They both agreed that this applied only to men. Husbands had this right. 
However, the prevailing opinion was that indecency meant not only sexual immorality, but any cause deemed indecent in the husband's eyes. And this was the opinion of the culture. So how does Matthew 19.3, we go back to the text, inform our, our passage then? Well, Matthew is just making explicit what Mark assumes. When Mark notes that the Pharisees asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He simply assumes his audience supplies the phrase for any cause. That was the notion of the day. We do this all the time, right? The example I've seen before is, is this. Consider the question. Is it lawful for 16-year-olds to drink? Well, we could possibly answer this question, well, yes, because if they don't drink, they would die from dehydration, right? Well, we would actually all answer no, because we all know that this question is actually asking, is it lawful for 16-year-olds to drink alcoholic beverages? Because this is how we understand. We supply the, 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 we supply the assumed phrase. This is an example you can see uh, different theologians use to describe this. So the Pharisees test Jesus by inviting him into the debate. Mark assumes that we supply the phrase, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? But Jesus does not take the bait. Jesus asks them, what did Moses command you? To which they respond, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So they come to test Jesus, but now Jesus, in turn, tests them. He turns the tables on them with this question to prove that they are misusing the law and working their way around it to allow for sinful behavior to perpetuate. They're using it to toe the line, to see how close they can get without actually breaking it. The provision in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, describes a scenario of divorce that has taken place because the husband has found some indecency, likely adultery. The passage does not legislate divorce. It's not commanding it. It only assumes that this divorce and remarriage has happened, that it is a possibility, and it regulates the remarriage aspect. But this is what the Pharisees are hanging their hats on. They're using this law to justify divorce for any cause. Rather than seeing that this law is in place because of their sinfulness, and in order to reveal God's character, in order to, re to reveal his sovereignty over marriage, in order to reveal his holiness with regard to stemming sinful behavior, and in order to reveal God as a protector of his image bearers that sinful behavior would seek to destroy, they see it and they co-opt it to perpetuate their own sinful desires. They make it into whatever they want it to be, the man-made image. As Cody said in his sermon, they've made it into a game of musical chairs, marriage that is. The result is that a man gets to marry whomever he wants, divorce her if she has a bad hair day or he sees someone better, and then he repeats the cycle while the woman is subsequently used and cast aside. This is the divorce-remarriage culture of the day. Divorce for any cause. We can relate to this in our culture, can't we? But here the Pharisees are using God's law to justify it. 
So Jesus, by his question, has exposed this, and now he speaks into this culture that has ripped marriage from its original place. First, consider Jesus' response, verses 5 through 9. Here we see in verses 5 through 12, part 2, Jesus' Old Testament retrieval of the original high view of marriage. God made marriage. Jesus first responds in verses 5 through 9, and Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Notice Jesus does not address what Moses said or that it was wrong. He doesn't take that on. He says, no, this was written because of sin. So Jesus is not pitting Moses against what he quotes, which is from Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. Jesus is going back to the original design, and he is not pitting Moses against God's original design. This provision is not pitted against the original design in the sense that Moses wrote both Genesis and Exodus. He wrote them both. He is not contradicting himself. Jesus, though, addresses how the Pharisees and the Jews in general are utilizing the law. Moses wrote this specific law regarding the nature of remarriage because of sin as a regulation for sin and evil and the perpetuation of it, to put barriers on it. But rather than see all of that, they read this law and use it to accommodate their sinful desires. They expand it to be whatever they wanted it to be. So Jesus makes it his mission here to retrieve the original design. He grounds mission, uh, he grounds marriage in God's original design. God invented it. God's design is that marriage is for one man and one woman. This is God's design. God's design is that the two come together in an elect relationship, forsaking all others. God's design is that they become one flesh, maintaining sexual purity and faithfulness with one another. God's design is that they they seek to provide for the needs of one another. Marriage is God-made, and what God has joined together, let not man separate. Or, you can translate, man must not separate. So, when marriage, as it is both in our culture today and this Jewish culture and context, becomes demoted to a man-made husk of what it used to be, then man ends up doing harm not only to the image bearers involved, but he actively fights against God's original intent. This is why God gave Deuteronomy 24. So Jesus retrieves the original sanctity of marriage that God intended at creation. Jesus rejects the low, man-made view of marriage of the day. And he holds forth the high, God-made view of marriage. Marriage is a divine union. Jesus' position is shocking to the culture of the day, even his own disciples. Look at, look at verses 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the, Jesus, uh, the disciples asked Jesus again about this matter. Why? It seems pretty straightforward about what Jesus just said. But remember, 
The prevailing view of the day is that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. It was not only a right, it was a requirement. This is what they've been raised to think. But Jesus shakes up the prevailing viewpoint of the day, turns it on, his, on its head and says, God's intent for marriage is permanence. The divorce is not a right. Divorce is not a requirement. Rather, it is only permitted in this law. The aim and desire of man and a woman by God's design should be to preserve the marriage covenant and work toward reconciliation. That's why in Matthew's account, you see the disciples react with, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better to not marry. Interpretation, if divorce is not a right or a requirement, but only permitted in this exception of sexual immorality in Matthew, then why would anyone get married? That's the the low view of the day speaking, and Jesus has upended it. So Jesus doubles down on the intended permanence of marriage by noting that when a husband and wife drink this Kool-Aid of the culture and then marry whoever they want, this amounts to adultery. They say, oh, I see someone better, therefore I will divorce you and marry them. That move does not, in and of itself, that legal divorce does not, in and of itself, undo what God intended. God meant for marriage covenant to remain unbroken. What God has brought together in a one flesh union, man must not separate to satisfy their sinful desires. So marriage is not to be taken lightly. Marriage is a high God-made institution, God-ordained calling. It is holy. And when man and woman are united in marriage on earth, their marriage covenant bears witness to, their, to, to this unity in heaven. It is God-made. Husband and wife participate in an earthly picture that points to a heavenly reality when they live faithfully in marriage. Marriage points us to Christ in the church. That's why Paul says, taking the same passage of Genesis that, that Jesus that Jesus just quoted in, in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and, and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. When two people choose to commit to one another in marriage, they make a covenant with one another. Malachi 2, 14, indeed, describes marriage as a covenant. When a When a woman and man choose to unite together, they are committing themselves to specific roles and obligations in order to fulfill this marriage covenant, knowing it will be imperfect, but still maintaining to preserve covenant faithfulness. This covenant relationship offers us a picture to the gospel reality. Husbands love their wives how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ died even for our covenant unfaithfulness in order to make a way for us, his bride, to be with him forever. That's what marriage points us to. Scripture describes our entire salvation as that of a bridegroom pursuing his bride, marrying her, shaping her, informing her into who she should be and then in covenant relationship, and then a celebratory consummation at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Pure bliss and joy with God forever. We can all relate to that 
idea of bliss and joy when we, if we think about, uh, for those of us who are married, when we think about uh, that wedding day, how we were anticipating the joy and the excitement of it, of what it would bring, that's just a little taste of what awaits us. And the reality is that even if we are unmarried, this is who we are. We are married to Christ. But sinfulness mars the earthly picture of marriage, and that should make us long for the true heavenly reality. Marriage is an earthly picture of a heavenly reality, won by Jesus on the cross. The heavenly reality can never be broken God will never break covenant with his oftentimes faithless people. But the question is, can the earthly picture of the heavenly reality be broken? This leads to our gospel application. So there are three primary main views in evangelicalism regarding divorce and remarriage. Three ways Christians over the years have sought to biblically and faithfully understand and apply this important, hard-to-understand, and very personal theological issue. Now, these three positions represent more of a spectrum, but it's easier to identify. There can be nuance in between the positions, but to get our hands around it, it's easier to consider these three categories. I'm not going to give all the details and the ins and outs of each of these positions, but hopefully a faithful overview is my desire. So the first position is never initiate divorce, divorce and never remarry. This is a, a position uh, prominently held by John Piper. The second position is this, sometimes divorce and never remarry as long as one's former spouse is still alive. And that applies to the first one as well. Sometimes divorce, never remarry as long as one form, one's former spouse is still alive. The third position is this, sometimes divorce, sometimes remarry. Now, this is, uh, tends to be the majority view. In fact, this was the view of mo- uh, many of, if not most of the elders at Bethlehem when, when we were members there. So you can see how there was unity even there where there was disagreement. So all three of these positions seek to hold high God's original intent for marriage. They seek to be faithful to scripture. They see marriage as a divine God-made union. All three of these positions stand counter to the culture of the day with regard to marriage, which hasn't changed much from the time of Jesus and, uh, and his cultural climate. The prevailing cultural view regarding divorce and remarriage is that it is almost that divorce is almost always legitimate and remarriage is almost always legitimate. But all three of these positions counter this notion. All three of these positions never seek to prescribe or maintain a posture of seeking divorce. The posture of all three of these positions is to obey God's command and never separate what he has brought together, to preserve the marriage covenant, and to always seek reconciliation. The knee-jerk reaction for Christians is to preserve the marriage covenant and to pursue reconciliation. All three of these views, though, also agree that the marriage covenant can be broken. All agree that death breaks the marriage covenant. 
The disagreement lies in whether or not certain sins break the marriage covenant and what subsequent remarriage looks like in light of a broken marriage covenant when a former spouse is still living. Really, these, as we mentioned, these three views represent kind of a spectrum. There's nuance in between them, but we'll take them in turn here. One other thing to note is that all three of these views have to take into account other texts in Scripture that speak to marriage and divorce, and they seek to faithfully do that. So let's consider uh, these positions in turn. First position, never initiate divorce and never remarry as long as one's former spouse is still alive. So this position understands scripture to teach that divorce should never be initiated. Furthermore, if divorce does occur, one should never remarry as long as a spouse is alive. Only death breaks the marriage covenant. And this can be construed from scripture. Jesus says in our passage, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Whoever divorces his, their wife or husband and marries another commits adultery. We can get there from that. However, what do we do with, these, with the exceptions that Jesus seems to make in Matthew 5 and 19 regarding sexual immorality and the exception Paul seems to make in 1 Corinthians 7 regarding desertion? Well, let's look at the exception of sexual immorality in Matthew first. Matthew says... In 19.9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What do we do with this exception? Well, this position holds that the original word for sexual immorality here, porneia, which generally has a normative meaning for a very broad meaning of any uh, sexual misconduct, any sexual sin, often adultery, it, this, this position understands Matthew to be using this word to communicate a very specific meaning in the context of Matthew. Namely, Matthew uses this word to communicate the idea of sexual immorality, likely adultery or marital or unfaithfulness during the, the, the betrothal period, the ancient equivalent of engagement for us. But, but betrothal at this time was even held in higher regard. You're inevitably getting married, and, and, and in betrothal, you actually had to go through a formal divorce to undo it. So in the eyes of Jewish society, if you were betrothed, you were basically married. In Matthew, this is what Joseph aimed to do when he found out that his betrothed, Mary, was with child. He sought to divorce her quietly. So this is what Matthew is talking about when he says, no one should divorce except when they are betrothed and find some sexual impropriety has taken place. But anyone who is formally, truly married should never divorce. That's how this position understands the exception here. These, the passages in Matthew 5, 19, then 5 and 19 agree with Mark and Luke, who do not include this, uh, this exception. Never divorce. Well, what about Paul's exception, 1 Corinthians 7? Paul seems to make an exception in 1 Corinthians 7.15 when he says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So this, under, this position understands Paul in context, here regarding an unbelieving partner, to be counseling not divorce, but legal separation. That's why Paul is using two different words throughout 1 Corinthians 7, separate and divorce. So Paul is actually 
not saying that desertion is grounds for divorce. Rather, Paul is counseling a formal legal separation that would protect the abandoned spouse from a deserting spouse who would just come around whenever they wanted to for their own purposes and desire, perhaps sexual or otherwise. Thus, Paul is not contradicting the Gospels here. In some... There is never grounds for divorce and never grounds for remarriage while a spouse is alive. Only death breaks the covenant. Even if a spouse divorces an unwilling spouse, remarriage should not occur. Sexual immorality and desertion are not grounds. The only thing that breaks the marriage covenant is death. And when there is death, the surviving spouse is free to remarry. This is this first position. It aims to hold high God-made marriage and guard those within it from sin, compounding sin and undue harm to the weaker and more vulnerable. And it strives for a posture of reconciliation regarding strained or separated marriage relations. This is the first position. This leads us to the second view. The second view is sometimes divorce, but never remarry while the former spouse is still alive. This view, and the final view that we will discuss, hold similar conclusions regarding what are grounds for divorce. Though there can be some nuance, but since this view and the third view are generally landing in the same place, we'll consider them together in the third view. But suffice it to say for now, this second view recognizes that sexual immorality and abandonment, desertion, are biblical grounds for divorce. Both this view and the third view understand scripture to communicate that covenants can be broken. Essentially, when Jesus commands what God has joined together, let not man separate or man must not separate, this implies that man can indeed separate, that man can indeed uh, break the covenant. This view, along with the third view, understands then that scripture communicates that covenants can and are broken by not only death, but by sin and or sinful human beings. God maintains covenant faithfulness, but humans do not always. Thus, sin can dissolve the marriage covenant. This second view, though, agrees with the first view in that only death, the death of a former spouse, gives legitimate grounds for remarriage. It understands Paul to give this command in 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So in sum, the only legitimate biblical grounds for divorce in this view are sexual immorality and abandonment. Death and sin break the covenant. But the only legitimate biblical grounds for remarriage is the death of a spouse or a former spouse. One other note on this view and the third view. This view maintains, it does not conflate here on earth forgiveness with consequence. Both of these views, there can truly be forgiveness if if a spouse breaks the marriage covenant through sexual immorality, there is subsequent divorce. The spouse who was the victim can truly forgive the offending spouse, but the consequence of divorce can still hold. There are consequences for actions even in the midst of forgiveness here on earth. So, this leads to the third and final view, but just to... One final note on this second view. It aims, 
just like the first one, to hold high God-made marriage and guard those within it from sin, compounding sin, and undue harm, especially to the weaker and more vulnerable. It strives for a posture of reconciliation regarding strained, separated, and even divorced marriages. That's the second view. Let's look at the third view, which will take perhaps a little bit more explaining because there's more to it, and it might be the one that we're most often less familiar with. The third and final view is what we will consider is sometimes divorce, sometimes remarriage. It so happens that this view is the majority view among evangelicals and evangelical scholars, but we're not after being swayed by majority opinion. We're after being swayed by what is true and biblically faithful. But we still, worth taking into account that many Christians have faithfully wrestled with this question, and they fall all along this spectrum. Most of them tend to fall here, and I'm leaning on that from research done by the Bethlehem Baptist Church elders, many of whom, as I said, uh, held, most perhaps held or do still hold this position at the time. To put my cards on the table, this is the position that I find myself holding at this point in time based on my understanding of Scripture. So remember, the understandings of this position regarding divorce Uh, grounds for divorce also reflect in general position too. So let's consider the exceptions that we have looked at already in other positions. This position understands Jesus's exception clause in Matthew 5 and 19, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, this position understands sexual immorality, porneia here, the Greek, to mean what it most normatively means, and that is It conveys the idea of any sexual immorality of any type, pornography, sexual abuse, other sexual sins, marital unfaithfulness, any sexually immoral behavior on the part of a husband or wife. This was the more faithful understanding of the Jews in Jesus' day when they were thinking through Deuteronomy 24 and what indecency meant. Sexual immorality, sexual immoral sexual behavior. This is the normative meaning of the word, and this is what Jesus refers to when he offers this exception in Matthew. That's what this position holds. Why then do Mark and Luke not include it? Because in the, in the Jewish context, in light of Deuteronomy 24, and even in the historical context of the day that Jesus was speaking into, it was understood that sexual immorality, most often in the form of adultery, was always grounds for divorce. It didn't need to be said necessarily. So once again, just as Matthew was making explicit what was understood with regard to any cause, here Matthew is making explicit once again what was understood in this day and time. That sexual immorality was an exception. So Mark and Luke assume The sexual immorality is grounds for divorce. Matthew makes it explicit. Now, what do we do with Paul's exception in 1 Corinthians 7, the case of desertion? This position understands Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 to be discussing grounds for divorce that are not defined by sexually immoral behavior. Specifically, that in the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, a Christian has biblical grounds for divorce. 
Abandonment here is complete physical desertion of a spouse without any sort of view to honoring the marriage covenant or true reconciliation. Running away, disappearing, never to be heard from gone. That's what this position understands Paul to be saying when he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. This position understands Paul to be using the terms separate and divorce synonymously. That Paul is not meaning to communicate legal separation. He means to communicate divorce. So when there is physical desertion or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, this is grounds for divorce. But this abandonment need not be only physical, according to this position. This view understands that Paul is casting light on and applying Exodus 21, 7 through 11. This passage describes a man taking a slave girl and designating her as his wife. We heard it this morning. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then, she shall, then he shall let her be redeemed. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or her clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This position understands Paul to be having this worrying in the background of his mind as he's writing 1 Corinthians 7. Here the wife, while this wife is a slave wife, what this passage reveals is God's heart toward the vulnerable. This is part of what God's law does. It protects from sin. However, this woman, who was a slave, is now a wife. And her status as a wife should supersede her status as a slave. But sinful man will always find a way to exploit the vulnerable. Therefore, God puts measures in place to protect the weak and the vulnerable, slave wife, and to guard her rights in the context of this marriage. This, these, these measures give her a way out of a marriage characterized not by physical or spatial abandonment, but by passive abandonment due to neglect. According to this passage, if a husband withholds the vital needs of their wife, she may leave the marriage without any cost to her. The most basic needs outlined are food, clothing, and her conjugal rights, marital sexual relations. If a husband withholds these rights, which are on the order of physical, even perhaps emotional abuse, the woman is free to leave the marriage, meaning the marriage covenant has been broken. Indeed, this passage in Exodus describes the husband in this situation as breaking faith with his wife. This is a Hebrew word, breaking faith, that describes treachery, betrayal, adultery in the context of covenant. If faith has been broken and the woman is free to leave, it follows then that the marriage covenant was broken. And this passage pins the breaking of, the marriage, of that marriage covenant completely on the offending, abusive husband. And if this is the case for a slave wife, then it is certainly the case for a free wife. This view understands the New Testament not to undo this command, but to maintain it. It understands Paul to have this passage in his mind when he writes regarding marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. This is why Paul uses slave-type language of bound, enslaved, and free when he discusses marriage. Paul rehearses the same requirements in 1 Corinthians 7 that are reflected in Exodus 21. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. Paul also speaks to the responsibility of spouses to care for the needs of one another when he's reflecting on the anxieties we can feel to do so in 7.32-35. through 35. Those needs and providing for the well-being, least of uh, which, most basic of which, I should say, are food and clothing. Thus, physical abandonment, as well as physical and emotional neglect, are grounds for divorce. Likewise, if such passive abandonment is grounds for the divorce, then so is active abandonment and neglect in the form of physical, mental, or emotional abuse, whether against a spouse directly or indirectly against her children or his children. In the case of abandonment, if a believer, unbeliever offends, the abandoned spouse is free to divorce. If a fellow believer breaks the covenant through abandonment or abuse, then church discipline should seek the repentance of the offending spouse and the reconciliation of the marriage if possible. Or otherwise, if their unrepentance remains, may choose to affirm that they're not a believer. So the sin of sexual immorality and abandonment, whether passive or active in this view, breaks the marriage covenant. Where this view differs from the second view is that it understands that where there is biblically legitimate grounds for divorce, there is also biblically legitimate grounds for remarriage. Anytime there's a legitimate divorce, remarriage is permitted. So in sum, the only legitimate biblical grounds for divorce in this position are sexual immorality and abandonment. Death and sin break the covenant. And when divorce is biblically legitimate, remarriage is legitimate. However, this view, divorce doesn't necessarily break the covenant in and of itself. Rather, divorce is the legal declaration of the reality that the covenant has already been broken. Divorce can indeed break the marriage covenant when it is wielded sinfully against an unwilling spouse because divorce, where the marriage covenant remains intact, amounts to abandonment. hope we see that clearly. This view aims to hold high God-made marriage and guard those within it from sin, compounding sin, and undue harm to the weaker and more vulnerable, just as the first two do. And it strives for a posture of reconciliation regarding strained, separated, and even divorced marriages. Those are the three views. How do we apply all this quickly in conclusion? This should foster a culture of humility. We recognize that there are different views on this very important, personal, and painful issue. You hold your view with a biblically informed, clear conscience, open to listening to others in humility. This promotes and fosters a culture of care. Recognize that for those involved in hard marriages, sinful marriages, those who have been victims of divorce or sexual immorality or abandonment, God provides provisions for the protection of the weaker and the more vulnerable victim in all three of these positions, not the least of which is the local church itself. It's a family meant to care and step in in hard marriages, to step in and guard and protect those from sin, the image bearers within who are being hurt in their marriages or in an unwilling divorce. This should foster a culture of reconciliation. 
It, it, this fosters a culture of preservation to preserve the marriage covenant and, and to pursue reconciliation where at all possible. And this should foster a culture of grace where there has been the past sin of illegitimate divorce or remarriage, whether prior to coming to faith or while one was a Christian, we repent and do what is necessary and fitting to repent even to our former spouse, reconcile if possible, but if one is remarried, you stay married. That is a real marriage. In all cases, though, you cast yourself upon and take hold of the grace of God and Jesus Christ, our perfectly faithful bridegroom, even if we haven't been a perfectly faithful one. We don't carry around guilt and we don't dwell on the past sin. Christ covers it. His grace is enough. Take hold of grace and give grace because in Christ we are united and pure. So final conclusion in The danger of misguided notions and application is real here. The wrong posture to take with regard to these different positions, especially the last two, would be that of looking for some way to get out of marriage. That was the very problem the Pharisees had, wasn't it? Seeing God's law and provisions and thinking, oh, how can I use it to get out? Rather, these positions all aim for the same thing. They aim to reveal the character of God. They aim to hold high marriage, to retrieve, as Jesus did, the high and lofty original God-intended view of God-made marriage, and they seek to preserve it. It is a divine union, not a man-made one. And the reality that a marriage covenant can be broken, whether by death or by sin, should not lower our view or understanding of the marriage covenant. Rather, it should heighten our own sense of just how depraved and sinful we are and how horrible the curse that we languish under is. We are in a fallen world. And because of that, the earthly picture of marriage that points to the heavenly reality can and sadly is often shattered. And the response for Christians should be reconciliation where at all possible. Despite our faithlessness and sin, though, God remains perfectly faithful. Though the earthly picture of marriage may fall apart through death or sin, God will never break his eternal covenant with his sinful yet loved people whom he has restored and married. We all have a bridegroom in Christ who is perfectly faithful. And his grace is enough. So let us hold high the covenant of marriage. And and the image bearers within it who make it up, ever aiming to never break it, always hopeful for its restoration, grieving deeply when sin and death shatters it, always moving to protect and guard from further sin and hurt, all the while knowing that we are united to our true husband forever, and indeed, neither death nor sin will ever part us. Let's pray.